Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast that proves that award season is a year-round affair. I'm Vanity Fair Digital Director Mike Hogan, and I'm here with our film critic Richard Lawson. Hello. And senior writer Joanna Robinson. Hi. And we will be joined uh, later in the episode today by Julie Miller, uh, also senior writer, to talk about Comic-Con. She and Joanna are headed out there, which is very exciting. And Richard and I are actually kind of blissfully ignorant of what's coming down the pike. So we're excited to hear uh, from you guys what's to come. In the meantime, we got lots of other stuff to talk about. We're going to talk about the Emmy nominations, which have come out. We're going to have um, a, a civil debate about Ghostbusters. Uh, and then we're going to talk about Stranger Things, the Netflix series that uh, might be an Emmy contender in 2017. And then at the very end of the show, we will relitigate the 1983 Best Picture, and I will explain why later. But first, let's talk about the Emmy reactions. And Richard, you wrote up the snubs and surprises post for us. So what's the big standout thing that sort of made you scratch your head or pull your hair out? Um, well, it wasn't so much a scratch my head or pull my hair out. It was more of a confirmation of something that we've noticed happening. Um, and this was not, you know, this was not Juliana Margulies not getting nominated for The Good Wife. And, you know, there, there were there were some general, you know, fan outrages. But for me, the most telling thing about sort of our TV and political landscape was that this, for the first time since 2001, The Daily Show is not nominated in the Best Variety Series category. Yeah. So that basically was om- almost Jon Stewart's entire run. Every season that show was nominated. And this year with Trevor Noah at the helm, it was not, which, you know, is a kind of striking example of the way that that handover with between Stewart and Noah didn't quite work out. And it came at a time when there had been some kind of unfortunate tweets from The Daily Show's official account um, in recent weeks. And so for me, that just felt like the end of an era yeah. um, and maybe one that it will not be recaptured. Of course, it's been replaced by last week uh, tonight with John Oliver. So a Daily Show alum is still represented in that category. But then you but- pointed out that, you know, a lot of people do think John Oliver is the kind of uh, heir apparent, sure. right? Yeah. But also Samantha B is the other one, and she was left yeah. out. Right? Yeah. Well, I think that 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 show maybe was a little too new. It just premiered this winter, so maybe it didn't have quite the runway time that John Oliver has had. But um, Joanne, are you buying this uh, the too new theory? <laughs> No. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's the best, most gentle theory that I can think of. But the fact that Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee was nominated, which feels so culturally irrelevant. And Samantha B, who has just really struck a nerve with her show right out of the gate in a way that Trevor Noah has not been able to. Uh, it, I'm just baffled by that exclusion. So, Joanna, I kind of agree with you. But I, I mean... Look, we'll see what happens next year, but it definitely feels like this one got overlooked. But it, yeah. it, it was kind of a, a, a late entry, probably. So maybe we'll give them another chance. But uh, and and what else, Richard? The Americans—that was a big exciting. Well, thing, yeah. Right? Speaking of, you know, it, sometimes it takes the Emmys a long time to get to come around to a show, and so this was the Americans' fourth season, and it's won um, a, a, an Emmy for Margot Martindale's guest performance. She's been nominated a few times. The writing's been nominated, but it's never been in the big big categories before. After all this critical acclaim that that show has. So finally, for season four, it gets Best Drama nomination, Best Actor, Best Actress. So, you know, it took the the Academy a little while, but they got around to it eventually. And I think that was a big, that was probably the big kind of surprise, I would say, of the drama category because it came at the expense of The Good Wife or some other potential ones. Um, And it also really signaled an incredible year for, for FX, which just got this insane amount of nominations between yeah. that and Fargo and other things oh, and, and people versus OJ um, Simpson, obviously. So FX really, um, 
you know, is kind of competing with HBO for that sort of most prestigious network title, I think, at this point. Well, let's talk about People versus OJ, because I, I was pleasantly surprised that my worst nightmare didn't come true, which is that John Travolta was going to get nominated and Courtney B. Vance wasn't. Right. That was, I was just <laughs> yeah. having like shaking feeling that that was going to happen. Um, Joanna, what do you think about all the acting nominations, including uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. and David Schwimmer on People versus OJ? I was excited to see, I mean, especially Sarah Paulson in there, who I feel like is a sure, surefire to win. Uh, delighted to see Courtney B. Vance, even Sh- David Schwimmer, who, you know, people had some fun with, but he's all part of this very entertaining package. But Cuba Gooding Jr. never quite worked for me in that role. So I, I was surprised to see him in there, to be honest with you. And I think that he kind of came, he, he spoiled uh, Oscar Isaac's chances for Show Me a Hero, which was the David Simon series. They really got kind of shut out. So mm-hmm. I, I thought, no, I think that that slot was, I think, Oscar Isaac's to, to have over Cuba. Yeah. I got to tell you, well, you know, if you watch the documentary, which I just did, yeah, yeah. Um, Cuba just cannot hold a candle to OJ. OJ's just more, uh, more of a kind of movie star yeah, matinee idol than yeah. Cuba. Yeah. It might be an impossible role. Like, who the hell is going to play that role? I mean, it would. I mean, it would have to be someone who we've never seen before. Maybe, right? Like, yeah. But then, but um, Schwimmer was amazing as Kardashian. I mean, he was like, yeah. he captured it. He, yeah, he really did. Actually, Travolta kind of cra- captured um, the crazy. <laughs> you know, whatever. Uh, okay, all right, and then and then Joanna, we got to talk about Game of Thrones. Is this we the sure peak do. of Game of Thrones? Uh, is this is this like the top of the mountain now for Game of Thrones um, with only two short seasons left? Is this as good as they're ever going to do or is it going to get better and better? I don't know how they could. Do you mean in sort of quality or public estimation? I guess just being the center of the culture, maybe. I think they're going to be the center until they finish, regardless of quality. It's sort of reached Breaking Bad status, where everyone is just oh, dialed in until the end. I think taking those two shorter uh, final seasons is a smart way to go. They're going to go out as strong as they can, getting it out, all out there. They had a staggering 23 nominations, m- way more acting nominations than they usually have. You know, all the, all the same technical awards, but add those acting nominations on top of it, and it's really theirs to lose in a lot of cases, I think. If you had to pick one one award that you want to see from Game of Thrones, what would it be? It would have to be, I guess, directing for Miguel Sapochnik, who did the Battle of the Bastards in the finale, which I thought was amazing. I'm acting wise, I know I'm cheating. I'm going to give you two. Wait, I thought you didn't like Battle of the Bastards. Wait a minute, I thought you didn't like Battle of the. Bastards. I didn't love the storytelling necessarily, but as a technical achievement, okay. I thought it was incredible. Okay, I did. I misunderstood. I mean, does okay. that right. makes? I mean, I I think yes, you I can it. think not everything hangs together, and still just really admire what Miguel Sapat basically did an action movie in an hour of television. It was incredible. Yeah. Uh, and sorry, what else were you going to say? I was going to say Lena Headey for uh, acting. I really wanted Sophie Turner and Nicola Costa-Waldo to get nominations. But of all the actors nominated, I would really love to see one for Lena. So there you go. Is it ridiculous that I want Amelia Clark to win? It is absurd. But it's just I have a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's hard to get on a dragon and, and fly around on the back of a CGI dragon. It's not easy. Have you tried? <laughs> if there were an award for best flying on the back of a CGI dragon, I'd give it to Amelia Clark every day. All right. That's fair. Uh, Richard, what are you wanting to see when? Who are you wanting to see when in general? Um, well, mine is sort of cheap because she's going to win. It's Sarah Paulson. I'm just 
Like she's been, and she's got two. She's got best supporting and best actress. Yeah, and Laurie Metcalf actually has three this year. Wow, two of them wow. are for the guest category. But Laurie Metcalf, boy, for getting on and uh, that Horace and Pete show, and for the Big Bang Theory. I mean, what a weird collection of things to be nominated for. So I'm rooting for her in something. Um, but yeah, Sarah Paulson. I just think that like her kind of ascendancy as one of the go-to like great dramatic and weirdly comedic actresses of her age you know is it, it could be kind of uh, seeing its ascendancies you know at these emmy ceremonies so for that incredible performance as marsh clark well i want everything is copy to win just because i feel like we'll have a really good party for our boss graden carter who's oh. nominated for an emmy <laughs> not to get too ass kissy <laughs> right, but i'm uh, just i want yeah. the vanity fair readers at home to know that uh that that's that's a nomination uh and amelia clark and i'd like for amelia clark to come to the party Oh, and I for see. us to ride so. a dragon. Everything is Clarky. Everything is Clarky. <laughs> <laughs> so Ghostbusters. So last time we were uh, did this show, uh, only Richard had seen Ghostbusters. And now, Joanna, you've seen it, yeah. and I've seen it. And Joanna, you agree with Richard that this is this didn't really work, huh? Is that right? Yeah, I agree with almost every word of Richard's review, except he liked Chris Hemsworth a bit better than I did. And that might be an Amelia Clark thing, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that was the only thing he liked. <laughs> So I, uh, yeah, which which I was surprised by. I went in rooting for this movie very hard and wanting to love it, and I didn't. But what's good is that a lot of people do like it, so I'm not, you know, tearing down my own gender if I say I didn't, it wasn't for me. You felt obliged as a woman in in the entertainment writing space to to like it if you could. I did feel pressure to like it, yeah. yeah. And uh, and I felt pressure, and I felt enormous emotional investment in it succeeding. And it didn't do amazingly at the box office, but it did okay. Uh, I, we all wish it had done a little bit better, but... Um, yeah. What do you think about this idea that Deadline was kind of positing that? A 49, was it 49 million? Something like that. Dollar um, box office yeah. for a 150 plus million movie means that when they do reboots, they're just not going to take risks like this that end up potentially polarizing audiences. Well, the the real damaging factor for Ghostbusters is that it's not going to open in the Chinese market, which is where a lot of underperforming reboots do well, you know, they do well abroad. And that has nothing to do with the women and everything to do with some superstitious stuff in China, is my understanding. So... That's true. Deadline might be right that people will feel more risk averse, but this Chinese factor can't be ignored, and that that it doesn't have much to do with as much to do with the risk, right? Right, right. But back to the movie. So, just like, what was it that didn't work for you? For me, the chemistry of the four leads, who I all feel are very talented in their own right, never quite clicked. And for me, a Ghostbusters movie really needs to be yeah. about a team that that sort of vibes off each other in a really solid way. And I, I, they did not get there for me. I like them as individual notes, and then they never made a, a harmonious chord uh, as I was yeah. watching. So that was a problem for me. I, You know, I think I just my... Um 
expectations were so low going in <laughs> that I just sat and laughed. I thought there were just a lot of funny jokes. I th- it started right off with what's his name from uh, Silicon Valley. Yeah, and Zach Woods. Zach actor, Woods yeah. and the joke about the uh, anti-Irish security fence mm-hmm. at the mansion. And I was just like, <laughs> you know, I was in that mode. It was a, it was a week, weekend afternoon, hot day outside, so I was happy for his air conditioning. And uh, I don't know. I think I'd heard so much bad stuff that I was kind of expecting everyone to just like be bad right. at acting or something. And they're they're fine. I mean, there's definitely a lot of holes in the movie the more you think about it. Like yeah. the the fact that they obviously shot a dance scene, which probably they shouldn't have shot the dance scene. Right. But then they realized that it didn't work, so they just cut it out of the movie. But then there was no explanation for why everybody had to do this, like... The Travolta point. Travolta point. At least they use it in the closing credits. Can you imagine if, you know, Matt Walsh and Michael K. Williams learned all that choreography and then they didn't use it at all? I Um, know. It's just sort of (laughs) bizarre. Also, there were about four closing credits sequences. Yeah. And I just didn't understand why Leslie Jones... I'm supposed to be defending the movie, but here we go. I didn't understand why Leslie Jones uh, quit her job at the MTA to join a club. It was a lot of well, head scratch. In the original movie, they're making it a business, right? And they don't really devote any time to that. I mean, sorry, we're spoiling things here, I guess. But oh, I'm sorry, we're spoiling. No, it's okay. Um, they don't really devote any much time in this version of the movie to where their money is coming from. Yeah, it just kind of hurries to its plot, and and then you know the kind of finer details are are sort of I guess maybe left up to a sequel or or what I don't know. But yeah, for me, that's I mean, you know, like just if you're going to film the dance, we can show the dance sequence. Let the movie be a little longer. It's okay, like because everything else it felt so rushed as is, you know. Yeah, and I feel like maybe we missed out on some good some good material. Something that does make me feel like a traitor to my sex is the things that I enjoyed the movie around the center quartet. Like I loved Zach Woods, I loved Cecily Strong, I loved Andy Garcia. Uh, I I thought a lot of the elements outside of the center four worked a lot, uh, but not the center four. That being said, as we mentioned last week, Kate McKinnon's star is hugely on the rise after this movie. Whether you know, my personal opinion aside, I love her in SNL, so I don't mind her getting this positive attention. But and and nice timing for her to get an Emmy nomination for SNL as well to kind of underscore it. I know there's something a little, I actually enjoyed the, again, I mean, I, I may have had Richard's review in my head a little bit. So I was kind of expecting Kate McKinnon to be like, I don't know, embarrassing or something. And I was right. like, this is okay. Yeah. I'm kind yeah. of laughing, but I do agree. It didn't quite, there was something about it that didn't quite make sense. But I actually, I, I was happy to see, I love Bridesmaids a lot. I was happy to see Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy you know, playing together. I was happy to see Melissa McCarthy um, with no vanity, another one of these like no vanity mm-hmm. roles where mm-hmm. she can kind of get like raw, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit, not crazy raw, but yeah. it was fun. Um, and I thought Leslie Jones was funny and good. So I don't know, but yeah. but it doesn't, it doesn't take off. It doesn't take flight like Ghostbusters, but yeah. how many movies do, right? So yeah. to me, it's sort of like with low expectations for a summer movie, it was like, this is fine. I'm laughing. Speaking of of uh, bridesmaids and Emmys and Kate McKinnon, um, when Bridesmaids came out, uh, shortly thereafter, Melissa McCarthy was up for an Emmy for Mike and Molly, and she won that year. And that large that was largely looked at like as a kind of it was she won that award not for Mike and Molly but for Bridesmaids. So maybe the same thing could happen to Kate McKinnon at this year's Emmys. Like they'll be like, oh, we loved you in Ghostbusters, and we like you in SNL. So here's your Emmy. Whereas those SNL actors almost never win. So right, that could yeah. be cool. I don't know. I and I think this is her second, if not her third year, nominated for SNL. Yeah. She was definitely nominated last year. So yeah, yeah. you're right. 
maybe this will be time. Kristen Wake never got that Emmy that she, and she used to be nominated for those, but right, right, right. Yeah. All right. Moving anyway, we did, we don't have to devote any more time to this movie because it's not going to get any awards. That that much I think I, think yeah. I confirmed, uh, despite Kate's Emmy prospects. This year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to Butcher Box. ButcherBox is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. Each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of high-quality meat right to my home. All meat is free of antibiotics and hormones. Each box has 9 to 11 pounds of meat, which is enough for 24 individual meals. It's packed fresh and shipped frozen and vacuum-sealed so that it always stays that way. I can customize my box or go with one of theirs. Either way, I get exactly what I want. ButcherBox is really the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat. With ButcherBox, you get the highest quality meat for just about $6 a meal. And they even have free shipping nationwide, except for Alaska and Hawaii. So start your year off right with up to 10 pounds of free meat. For a limited time, ButcherBox is offering new members their ultimate keto bundle when you sign up today. That includes one pork butt, two pounds of ground beef, and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com slash cadence. That's butcherbox.com slash cadence. But let's go from Ghostbusters uh, to something that does have a chance of getting awards, not at the Oscars, but at next year's Emmys, which is Stranger Things, this new uh, series on Netflix. 99 out of 100 times, kid goes missing. The kid is with a parent or a relative. What about the other time? What? You said 99 out of 100. What about the other time? The one! Richard, can you tell the audience, if they're if they're not familiar with it, what this is and, and why they should watch it? Sure, yeah. Um, I ran a rave review on VF.com last week that you can read. Um, but in short, it's uh, this Netflix series from these two guys named the Duffer Brothers who wrote on that show Wayward Pines. But um, beyond that, or I think they're pretty young. Like they're, this is kind of their first big thing. Um, and it's this real throwback homage, you know, ode to... Stuff from the early 80s, you know, E.T., Close Encounters, uh, hor- certain horror movies, Stephen King novels um, that, you know, sort of captivated your mind as a kid, if, well, depending on how old you are. Um, and they, you know, and so it's a scary kind of story about a military research facility that runs amok in a small town and kids on bicycles are going on an adventure and are involved. There's a mysterious little girl. Like, it's all this kind of great fun stuff thrown together in a way that's very carefully realized with the period detail and the mood and the tone is very humane and it's scary but the show has heart um i'm really quite taken by it i think it's it's really something special and that it could have been a kind of annoying ironic just like piece of crap junk nostalgia but it, it goes a lot deeper than that and taps into some kind of childhood i don't know deep feeling that i really responded to you watch the whole series. Yeah, I, this, you know, Netflix lately has been very good about giving critics the entire seasons of shows. Yeah. So you can really give a definitive review. So yeah, I watched, I thought it was a miniseries, but so I was a little surprised at the end where I was like, oh, I know, I think they're doing a second season just <laughs> judging by how this ends. But um, but yeah, I just, I, I devoured it and, and was happy to write like a really positive kind of thing about it. And Joanna, what about you? Have you, have you seen the whole thing? 
Yeah, I watched the whole thing this weekend, uh, based a lot on Richard's glowing review. And I had watched the first episode, and I wasn't sure whether the nostalgia was too overwhelming. And I think at the start, it does rely a little too heavily on these loud 80s tunes that get piped in and all that sort of stuff. And I think that fades away as the series goes on. You get a great haunting score that's almost John Carpenter-ish that comes in in the back half of the show. And the characters start becoming more human and less sort of 80s archetypes. And I there there's a performance, I, I should look it up right now, but the performance for the young girl who plays this sort of scientific experiment, I thought was a standout. Millie uh, Bobby Brown is her name. She's great. Uh, I, I didn't love all the kids, but I thought she was just really arresting. So yeah, yeah, it's I really enjoyed it a lot. I got to say, I because I want to keep going. I saw two episodes last night, and the first episode, I was thinking, oh man, you know, another. It's like so many of the same elements. I don't know what else you can do. It's mm-hmm. just like here we are in a town with kids on bikes, and someone goes missing, and there's a weird government facility in the town, and there's a kind of a offbeat cop. And but it reminded me of um, first of all, it looked exactly like my childhood. It was horrifying, <laughs> and the kid who goes missing looks exactly like my cousin, uh, down to the the haircut and everything and the clothes. Um, but but it reminded me recently. I I watched um, the pilot of Twin Peaks. Uh, I was trying to show it to my dad, actually, oddly, <laughs> and that that is, pilot is a slog. Actually, the show is great. It's amazing. Yeah. But it's weird and long, and there's no uh, Dale Cooper. And, you know, it's just like you got to start to tell one of these stories, you have to start by putting all the pieces into place. Right. No one's figured out how to just skip all that. Right. So it, it is generally when you get past that stuff, all right, we've set it all up. Now we can actually start exploring the characters that it gets good. And I thought the second, you know, the second half of the first episode and the second episode are really good. We, I don't even know if we've mentioned Winona Ryder yet. Oh, yeah. Her big yeah. kind of interesting comeback here playing a very high-strung yeah. single mom. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a weirdly one-note character but it's a it's, huge it's, note it's, it's like, a little bit yeah. like laura palmer's mom yeah uh, in twin peaks actually yeah. it's that sort of like completely frantic chain smoking yeah trembling shrieking Crazy person yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 um but uh no i'm really excited to see what happens what happens next and are, are you are you seeing do you see emmy possibilities here i think that winona Ryder really could be yeah in, in the mix for that and possibly Millie Bobby Brown because her, you know the, the, all the kids are great which is so rare for this kind of thing I, I think yes. maybe Super 8 most recently kind of figured out how to get good performances and Super 8 is its own kind of um, um, homage to these same tropes but um, maybe some of the kids but they might all kind of split the vote um, but I think I don't know. I think that Winona is is probably the the real big standout. You know, yeah, she's which she's, I'm ha- which I'm fine with. She's, and and everyone wants to live through that comeback story. Oh, her. absolutely. I mean, we we were talking about this when we were talking about whether or not Stranger Things was a, something to talk about in this podcast. I looked up Winona's sort of Academy Award history and forgot that there was a time when she was a Best Actress contender twice, yeah. you know. And wow. so yep. she was, I, I, know she, I knew she was this thing, but she was this award thing. She wasn't just a cultural thing. She was an award thing. And, and then she sort of went away. She's been playing these kind of nervy, shrill characters. I loved her in Black Swan. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had a small part in that. She was pretty great in Show Me a Hero as well. So I think, yeah, a lot of people are rooting to see Winona come back in a big way. And what about David Harbour? Is he have? Is he just kind of like the uh, requisite white guy here, or does he have a chance of breaking out? 
I think he's been long percolating as like, uh, you know, he's kind of one of those faces now. We we know right. him, but we don't know his name. And and but I think I think that this is his big sort of like okay. Now we know that his name is David Harbor, and he's plays the male hero, adult male hero in this yeah. show. So he's the cop, the sheriff. Who yeah, has the weird like, with his tragic past. Who yeah yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean you know all these characters are stock characters, but they're really well rendered. When um, he first shows up, he's shirtless. And it's it's one of those classic things that cracks me up as a like a semi schlubby guy of about the same age, where he's like clearly one of these actors who's been toning his body for twenty five years and had to like, can you please gain weight? And right. So he has got to like jut his gut out <laughs> as much as possible and pretend he doesn't have a six pack yeah. underneath it. Anyway, what can you do? You know, Emmy yeah. for uh, pretending to be schlubby well, for people five minutes. One Emmys for less, but no, I think this. I think he, I think his victory here is really just. Um, uh, as a, this is like a big break for him. You know, I think that. Yeah, going from a that guy to David Harbor, yes, sort of yeah. is. Uh, yeah, exactly. I loved him on the newsroom. He played this like other anchor on the newsroom, oh, and I loved weird. him on that. So I was really happy to see him get a, a leading role in this. And how about Matthew Modine? Does he ever? Uh, does he ever have a shining moment here? Um, Not really. I don't, yeah, I don't want to spoil anything, but he, yeah. but no, he he stays the bad guy for. Yeah. You know, like, you know. <laughs> um. All right. So, but but maybe yeah. So some acting stuff, maybe a score thing here. Yeah, and there. some design stuff. Um. You know, I mean, it's hard. It's always hard to tell with these Netflix shows because, you know, some of them kind of get the attention of the awardsy people, and some of them just kind of don't. And I think that this being a genre piece, you know, it's sci-fi, it's horror. It might have. A, it's probably got a tougher climb, but I would hope so. Because and people, I was kind of monitoring Twitter all all weekend. Not politics and awful Twitter, like just fun <laughs> TV Twitter. <laughs> uh-huh. And um, people were just like, just really, really into it, which I was happy to see. So, so maybe it it could be a kind of cult hit. And but I I think you're right in terms of genre because we just saw Jessica Jones get snubbed for everything except I think main title sequence mm-hmm. at at the Emmys this year, and and that was such a critical cultural darling last year um, my own feelings about it aside and so I think genre really stands in the way and also time and short memory with these Netflix shows yeah. that come out people binge them in a weekend or two weeks or something like that and it's the summer are people really going to remember it a year from now when the Emmy nominations come out you know and I think that's not just for Emmys but I think in in terms of lasting cultural impact that's really something that Netflix is, Netflix is going to have to figure out is that you know the conversation around a show really only, I mean, it, barring like a, an Orange is New Black kind of bolt of lightning out of nowhere, a show needs time to build. And if Stranger yeah. Things had two months in the summer where people were watching once a week, right? then it would be, I think it could be a thing. But, you right, because you don't expect the night of to have that same problem of just it has kind time. of being dumped because it's going to build up yeah. and people keep hearing about it. And everybody, yeah. you know, you see on Twitter being, I still haven't watched it, but you keep people saying, oh, I finally like caught the first episode. I'm psyched to see last night's episode whenever, yeah. you know. But yeah, it just takes a while. It's hard to digest 10 hours or eight hours of TV. And everyone's watching it at a different point, you right. know, so no one can really talk about it. And it's hard to write about it, frankly. And, you know, yes. and, you know it's better when all everyone has the same information, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I mean, especially especially with something like Stranger Things, which has a mystery at the center of it. Yeah. Uh, and as you say, it's summertime. I think the internet, at least, the plugged-in internet audience, could have gotten really behind trying to solve a mystery of Stranger Things if it had spooled out over 10 weeks. Yeah. Well, they, I think they should play with it, um, play with that format. But only for the Emmys. Just for the Emmys. Right. Yeah. For, for Emmys' yeah. sake. That's right. <laughs> 
So we have Julie Miller, our senior writer, joining us from Hollywood, California. Hi. Hey, Julie. Welcome. And uh, we wanted to ask you and Joanna about Comic-Con because you guys are both heading down. And Richard, I think I can speak for both of us when I say that we really don't know what the hell is going to be happening and we want to hear it from the experts. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm here to learn. All right. So tell us, what's, what are you guys most excited about? Uh, I guess I will say last year, I went last year, and the highlight for me last year was the Star Wars panel. Star Wars is not going to be there this year because they just had their big uh, celebration event in London, which was a Comic-Con unto itself. Uh, But we will have big panels from Warner Brothers and Marvel debuting their big slates, uh, which is largely, you know, superhero fare, but we'll also have some Harry Potter thrown in. And this is really a chance for those huge juggernaut studios to to show us what they got. It's pretty amazing. If you're in the Hall H, which is this massive, massive room, they, uh, at least Warner Brothers last year, rolled back the sides of the hall. And so you were, uh, you know, 180 surrounded by screens filled with these lavish uh, video productions that they had put together for films that some of which hit and some of which didn't, like Man from Uncle. You know, there was like this big thing and then that movie kind of didn't land, I think, the way they wanted it to. So those would be my two big exciting things. Is it hard to tell when you're there whether you know, what's going to be a hit and what's going to be a big uh, pile of, you know, dog manure? Not really, because, you know, even Batman v Superman, which I was never quite excited for, when you're in the room and the stars are there and they're hyping it all up, you know, it's hard not to get excited. That being said, I think Suicide Squad, which debuted its footage there last year, made the biggest impact of it all. And box office tracking wise, it looks like it might be the biggest of all these big Warner Brothers films coming out. So, And, and so, so it really does. This, this thing really has a major effect, right? I mean, fans pay attention and they're looking for cues of, of what they should be excited about next year. Do you think that's right, uh, Julie? Um, I, I think so. Definitely. It's, it's interesting. Joanna and I are really going to bring a very, uh, odd couple vibe to Comic-Con this year. Odd (laughs) couple vibe. Um, because she's very much tuned into what's happening inside Hall H and the studio presentations. And I'm kind of going to be more man on the ground outside, um, going to some, uh, cosplay meetups. There are some really great ones planned, um, and Vanity Fair will have a video contingent there. We'll be doing some Facebook Live. We're going to be Facebook Living with talent from, from some of the films, right? Not with cosplayers or maybe with cosplayers? Well, we're very excited for We think uh, Harley Quinn is going to be like the biggest costume there this year, especially with the impending like Suicide Squad release. So we're going to, there's a Harley Palooza, and we'll be interviewing um, some of the different <laughs> Harleys for a video that will go up this weekend. And then what I'm probably most excited about, though, is there are three different Pokemon Go meetups, one of which is in Balboa Park. So I'm just picturing, like, a beautiful, beautiful disaster of thousands of people just screaming <laughs> to their phones in, like, a phenomenal scenery. It should be really interesting. So, you know, people listening to this may not know this about you, Julie, but Julie's, like, a very glamorous personage, you know? It's it's kind of hard to imagine. I can barely imagine you at the Harley Palooza, and I'm having a hard time watch, thinking of you playing Pokemon Go, but is that 
a thing that you're doing these days? Well, I'm also very interested in the most unlikely celebrities at Comic-Con, one of whom is Ted Danson. He's going to be there for his new NBC series. So, you know, what Ted Danson is to Comic-Con, I feel like I am to Comic-Con reporters. I have no business being there. If you can if we can do a video of you and Ted Danson playing Pokemon Go together, that would I think that could really be great. And so then Joanna, you'll be in Hall H and Hall H is where the that's that's the big hall where all the presentations happen and and there's a not to keep harping on game of thrones but you know how i feel about that show there is a game of thrones presentation right yeah criminally they've they've planned the game of thrones panel at the same time as stars as american gods panel which is just an insane overlap of audience that i can't believe that they did that but I will be there at the Game of Thrones panel, but I don't anticipate there being any news out of the Game of Thrones panel because I was there last year and all they did was say, we haven't seen the scripts yet. We don't know, which is actually something I buy more this year because as we, we've we all learned, they're starting shooting later this year because of the weather. So it's possible that yeah. they don't have the scripts, but I expect just a complete lockdown from the cast footage. They're just there for people to get really excited about, but they won't answer any questions because Game of Thrones is a real a real secret or operation these days. But whereas American Gods, which is a new show from Stars based on a best selling fantasy novel by Neil Gaiman, show run by Brian Fuller, who did Hannibal and a lot of other great shows, and with a great cast, including Ian McShane and Cloris Leachman and all these great people, uh, they're probably gonna lay it all out on the table because they just want everyone to see their show. They're so they're the new kids on the block. So so that's probably going to be the more informative panel, but Game of Thrones is going to win out, probably. Walking Dead will also be there. That's another big TV panel that everyone will want to be a part of. So I was just going to ask if you knew which Game of Thrones actors will be there. Any of the big ones? Sophie Turner will be there. Um, but other than that, it's sort of the, the B tier. <laughs> No offense, I don't. I don't necessarily want to name names, but I will say that Sophie Turner is probably like the only big name out of the cast that's going to be there this year, which is a change from years past. And but Weiss and Benioff will be there this year. They weren't there last year, but they'll be there this year. So we'll see. Um, last Joanna, did, did, they, did the Walking Dead panel does that tend to reveal anything big? Because obviously, fans of that show are eagerly awaiting, um, you know, reveals about major character deaths. It has in the past. Usually they debut a big, long, splashy trailer. Uh, I don't know what they're going to do this year. They might do the same thing as Game of Thrones and just go into lockdown mode. Uh, And so what you might just see is the newer, scrappier shows are there to show you everything they have. And then these established shows that have a huge audience and don't need to curry favor uh, are just going to show up to be pretty tight-lipped, I think, about what's coming up on their shows. Joanna, is there any chance that American Gods can save the internet? That's my real question here for you. Well, see, that's a great question. Uh, Yeah, just to give people context, Game of Thrones is like a substantial portion of basically everybody's traffic because 23 million people a, a, a week watch it and they're all obsessed and they read recaps and they go and read many amazing articles that Joanna writes on our site specifically. So we're all kind of wondering, like, when this thing goes away, when, when the GM plant closes, we're all fired. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, sorry. So what do you think? 
Well, two things. I was going to say there's going to be a Preacher panel at Comic-Con, and Preacher was a show that I was sort of hoping would save the internet because it's also based on a hugely popular geek property. It had Seth Rogen behind it, a great cast, looks great. They made them, I think AMC made a huge mistake debuting it opposite Game of Thrones. I don't know why they did that. I think they should have waited until Game of Thrones was done, and then everyone could shift their focus to Preacher. But that show has not hit in the way that I hoped it would. Is Game of Thrones like doing this to everybody? <laughs> I feel like... Well, I, okay, you're talking about. I, I thought you meant at Comic Con they were overlapping the same way as American Gods. Oh no, like, no, I, just... I meant I meant AMC aired Preacher the right. same time as Game of Thrones, and I think they should have waited. American Gods will not air opposite. It's it, it's going to start in January, I believe, of next year. And the problem with American Gods is it's only one book. There's kind of a second book. I would say two books max. And whereas opposed to Game of Thrones, which is sprawling epic, so I don't know how AMC uh, or Stars, which is doing American Gods, I don't know how they plan to stretch that out or if this is just going to be one season i don't know if they know yet but uh i think it has potential we've we've gotten some good interest in our american gods content it's got a really passionate dialed in audience so we'll see um julie i have a question for you just because it seems like you're kind of more exploring that the culture of this place um I keep every year when I read coverage of Comic Con, I read about some celebrity who's like just put on a mask and walked around in the general population and hasn't been unbothered. Do do you think there's truth to that? And if there is, is there any way to detect like which which costumed person is a celebrity? Um, I think you'd have to tell by their entourage, right? But I think that there's so much truth to that because it would be so easy. It's just a crowd, a mass of people wandering around in costumes and. It's. It would be very easy to disappear there as a celebrity or as some sort of, like, thief. I'm surprised there isn't more crime at Comic-Con. Uh, but there, yeah, I think that I'll be on the lookout for someone with, like, an entourage and carrying their bags. <laughs> What I've observed in years past is that those people actually don't have an entourage because, you know, it's their chance to feel normal. And what you want to be on the lookout for is someone who's dressed normally or sort of well, I guess, with either a stormtrooper helmet on or something like just one headpiece thing on. Usually they just put like something covering their face, uh, I think. But Daniel Radcliffe went full Spider-Man spandex all over his body when he went incognito at Comic-Con. So sometimes they really go for it, but mostly they just put a Stormtrooper helmet on over their normal clothes. So Right, just look for like a guy with zero body fat and a, and a man scarf with like <laughs> right, a Stormtrooper exactly. hat, a, a thing on his head. Okay, all right. That's what we'll all be on the lookout for. And Julie, I think you should make a video where you perform petty crimes and get away with it because you're just in a costume and you're, you're dressed as Harley Quinn. I think we've got a lot of good video ideas after this uh, <laughs> session, which is great. Yeah, we'll have to send that this podcast to legal, but I think... <laughs> My other great idea for a video, which I, I told Joanna about, I don't think this is Vanity Fair's brand, so if anybody wants to do this, I'm very interested, is I want to go to San Diego with a licensed therapist and go around to all of the scantily clad Princess Leias and just, like, ask them, like, what brought them to this life moment? Because they're just courting this attention from these these men just shamelessly. I don't know. They're really in their element there. But I have a lot of questions. I, I would watch that video. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> I'm not. I'm, otherwise, I'm not touching it. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and we're really excited to see what you guys uh, come up with. Good luck. Knock them dead. And uh, Julie, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you guys. 
welcome stay so i wanted to go back to 1983 when i had the same haircut as the kid who goes missing in stranger things because it's the year that um that et lost best picture to gandhi and i thought this could be an interesting oh, one yeah. to litigate absolutely gandhi won et the extraterrestrial uh was also nominated as was missing tootsie and the verdict you all remember tootsie Dustin of Hoffman, yeah. yes, a little of course, cross-dressing yeah. escapade. Yeah, missing was directed by Costa Gavras, uh, and starred Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek. And the verdict was directed by Sidney Lumet, and stars Paul Newman and Charlotte Rampling. So a lot of like heavy-duty yeah. people, yeah. also of a certain age at that point, uh-huh. a little you know toward the end. And of course, we know what Gandhi was, even if we haven't actually sat through. Four hours of Gandhi, we all know. <laughs> I think I did once as a kid, which is which is strange. But, you know, Gandhi also notable for its, well, I, I was about to say it would never happen now, but if it might, you know, be, sort of racial problems, let's say. But see, now, does Ben Kingsley have some he does. ethnic strain that I yeah. think he does? Yeah. So it's, but yes. there, there was controversy about it, and still is, but... Um, but yeah, I, I mean, Gandhi at the time, it was a surprise that it won, um, if I remember correctly. Or, or or was it really just the the, the big prestige thing to beat that year? Um, that was the the year I was born, so I don't... Yeah, I, I mean, none of us were around then. Yeah. So we're it's a little more speculative. Yeah. I feel like Gandhi is kind of the ultimate sort of Oscar movie that no one ever watches right. again. I watched it in school. They showed it to us in school. As like an educational thing. So it's sort of like in the Schindler's List category to talk about another Ben Kingsley Oscar winner of movies that feel important and necessary, but not necessarily a huge joy to rewatch. Right. Not like a Netflix and chill. Kind of like like Lawrence (laughs) of Arabia where you're like, I mean, is it like Lawrence of Arabia? I have not, frankly, sat through Gandhi. But I'm guessing it's like Lawrence of Arabia where you're like, boy, this is going to be a long night. But by the end of it, you're like, man, I'm really glad I did that. Kind of like a Wagner opera type of a situation i would say lawrence of arabia has the these visual thrills that yes. Gandhi never has you know okay. where you're just watching it and you fall into the beautiful desert even though it takes you four hours to watch it right uh, with gandhi it's really a performance based thing and ben kingsley is wonderful in it but i i wouldn't say that it has quite the same allure that lawrence of arabia does okay and look i was a kid you guys weren't born yet but let's but anyway but let's just talk about et we really want to talk about et well i just wanted to say like that it's an, this is a really interesting year um uh, it proves that the academy awards don't always or often don't uh predict future classics i mean everyone knew right. that et everyone loved et the minute it came out yeah but like it's you know 33 years later and we reference et all the time i you know i don't know the yeah. last time i referenced any of these other movies i mean tootsie maybe right but you know what i mean but they st- but it still didn't win you know so yeah. i think that it's just an interesting kind of thought experiment it's like do- even though we love it as it is this kind of either you know totem from our childhood or whatever uh did it deserve to win best picture i would say yes yeah yeah i th- uh, joanna what do you think 
Yeah, I would say yes. I, weirdly, my first Oscar memory has to do with E.T., but I it can't have been 83 since I was two. So uh, there must have been some sort of reassessment tribute that they did at the Oscars one year that, that struck a chord with me. But that's my first Oscar memory is some sort of E.T. event that happened on the stage. And yeah, I think as a nod to the impact that Spielberg had at the time and his whole movement of this wondrous boy adventure uh, phase of Hollywood, I think it definitely should have won. And I think that probably now, looking back at it, it has this glow. Um, It feels like a time capsule. It feels like this, it's almost like a magical time capsule. And it had a magical effect at the time. And I remember being a kid and crying, by the way, crying my face off in the theater. My mother was like, what the hell have I done? Why did I bring my child to this seven-year-old child to this um but uh but it still probably looked at like a sci-fi kids movie at the time whereas now it sort of has this it has that oscar glow to it and maybe that's maybe that's just the kind of weight of nostalgia which you know increasingly i feel like we can't rule out um because everything that we remember is now sort of accessible in a way it wasn't 40 years ago we just remembered it and we never saw it again right um you know so i think maybe et uh my i'm i'm going with it you know saying it should have won just because uh the last 30 years have happened you know but but i think part of my point is there's life in it it's kind of like ghostbusters the original versus this one like this one is a flat but adequate summer comedy mm-hmm. that is enjoyable. Mm-hmm. But the first one captured something. It said something about our time. And then when you go back to it, you can kind of get a feel for what it was like to be alive at that time. Right. And I think E.T. has that. Yeah. And maybe the other ones do. I don't know. I mean, I'm probably not going to go back and look at them all um, for the purposes of this conversation. <laughs> but right. it feels like more than most movies, it really has that thing of like, man, that was that's what 1982 was like. Yeah, and I think that that's something that whether it's hist- it's a time period or it's an adventure, whatever, Steven Spielberg has always been good um, at convincing us of the world of his movies. You know, or not well, almost always. Yeah. Um, and I think that because E.T. is a movie of his that is grounded in its present day when it came out with real, you know, kind of real seeming people who are thrown, thrown into an extraordinary circumstance versus Indiana Jones, who's sort of a kind of serial hero or star, you know, um, you know, anything that's happened in the future or whatever. Um, E.T., you know, the com- that combination of real world stakes and Steven Spielberg working kind of at the height of his powers, it really, it really does something. It might be, as as Richard mentioned in the Emmy consideration for Stranger Things, it might be a genre bias that doesn't exist as much anymore when we see, I don't know, Christopher Nolan Batman movie or Lord of the Rings nominated for Best Picture. It might have been just a harder hill to climb to get a genre film that that acknowledgement in 83. So, Oh, totally. I think, I think that's 100% true. And it helped. I mean, Spielberg with Lucas, but more so than anybody, I think, helped legitimize the the sci-fi movie as, yeah. a, as well, as Lucas and Spielberg both were like, this is how you make money, first of all. And second of all, it can actually be art, I yeah. think. Right. Yeah. 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 And, 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 you know, maybe confuse those distinctions, which maybe confused Academy voters. Right. You know. And launched Drew Barrymore's career, although E.T. has never done anything since, which is very sad. Oh, he, no, that was by choice. Yeah, right, retired. I think to teach his class, acting class. Yeah. He has a jewelry line now he's, yeah. and a really yeah. great Twitter. Uh, really great Instagram. 
Well, that's all for this episode of Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for joining us. This episode was produced and edited by Kristen Meinzer. And thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for Best First Tinder Date goes to Julie Miller. I'm kind of going to be more man on the ground outside um, going to some uh, cosplay meetups. 